If you want to open up to Isaiah 40, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning as we jump back into our series on transitions. Uh, We have three more weeks in this series, looking at a couple more changes and transitions throughout the Bible and throughout God's people throughout history. I have a question to start out uh, for you this morning. What would it take to have you start panicking? Imagine with me for a second, you are 190 feet underwater. And you, you can't sink straight at this water level because of the pressure that's kind of bearing down on you. And the water all around you is kind of a milky dark, and so you're rarely even able to see the hand, your hands in front of your face. And you've got hold of a rope that's kind of guiding you through, that, that's attached to the boat up top so you know how to swim or where to go to get back out. And, and all of a sudden, you lose your grip on that rope. And you reach back out, and it's not there. You, you don't know which way is up, which way is down. You feel disoriented, confused, and all around you is pitch darkness. Would that be enough to make you start panicking? I know it would for me, and this is actually a scenario that a Navy diver by the name of Tommy McConnell found himself in, diving underneath, down in the ocean, losing his grip on the rope, not knowing where to go, disoriented, confused, crying out for help over the radio, until one of his fellow divers was finally able to actually locate him, take the rope, and place it back into his hand. Now, I share a story like that to start, knowing full well that has probably never happened to you and probably never will happen to you. But I think it's an image of what we sometimes feel like in life perhaps especially in the midst of changes and transitions, that, that as pressures weigh down on us or as things change around us, as life overwhelms us, that we feel disoriented, confused, not sure where to reach out to, maybe feeling like I don't even know which way is up and which way is down. And this is, in some ways, the exact scenario the Israelites find themselves in in about the 6th century BC. For years, the prophets have been warning the Israelites in the Old Testament to turn from worshiping idols to worshiping the true God. Or else, God is going to come and judge them and send them into exile. And this has been the message on repeat throughout the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, turn, repent, trust the God who loves you, or else he's going to send you into exile. And rather than listening, we find out the people harden their hearts, kind of plug their ears and say, we don't want to hear it. And so Isaiah 39 rolls around and God says, I'm bringing the Babylonians. They're going to ransack your land and they're going to take you into exile. It's going to happen. And then we flip the page and we get to Isaiah 40. And we find Isaiah speaking into a time when he'll no longer be alive. Speaking out into the future to people who find themselves in exile in Babylon. People who are confused. People who are disoriented. People who are wondering, has God abandoned us? Is he done with us? 
and Isaiah throws them this rope of hope in many ways, not just in this passage, but throughout the rest of Isaiah. And it's essentially the hope of the gospel that he's throwing out to God's people in exile. And so it's also a rope that as God's people throughout history, we can look at and learn from. And so let's jump into Isaiah 41 through 11 and see this gospel rope of hope that God throws to his people through the prophet Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray. Father, we gather each week to worship you and to find hope in knowing you and in what you've done for us in Christ. God, no matter how many times we hear the gospel, we need to hear it again and again and again and again because it's the rope that gives us hope. It's the thing that orients our lives when we feel disoriented. It's the thing that centers us back on you in the midst of all the ups and downs that we go through in this life. And so God, I I ask that you would, by your spirit, speak through these words to comfort us, to reorient us, and to have us walk out the doors worshiping you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we could sum up this passage in just one sentence, I think one way to sum it up would be this. As life changes, God's commitment to his people remains unchanged. And then to look back through these verses, we might see four things about God's commitment to his people, to us if our faith is in Christ, that might orient us and give us hope throughout all of life, ups and downs, changes and transitions, trials and difficulties. 
And so let's walk back through this passage and see those four things and why they should matter, not just to the Israelites, but to us. The the first is this, that God is committed to being for us. I think one of the incredible things, one of the, the incredible ways we might say to sum up the gospel is to say that God is for us in Christ. That God is for, like, to hear that, God is for me in Christ, 100%, is an incredible thing to be able to stand on and bank your hope in. And we've got to think about the Israelites in this scenario as they're hearing Isaiah's words and they're in exile. Right? They're, They're in homes that don't feel like home. They're surrounded by people who are speaking a different language, surrounded by people who everywhere are worshiping the Babylonian god Marduk and saying, he's the greatest god. They're in a new culture with new foods, new habits, new priorities, new values. They're in a place where everything is strange and likely no one really cares for them because they're at the mercy of a nation that just conquered them. And so if you or I were in that scenario, we'd probably have some questions for God. God, has our sin caused you to be done with us, to give up on us? God, have you abandoned us? Are you completely done with your people? God, even if you aren't, are you great enough? Do you care enough to pull us out of this mess that we are in? questions like those and others that we can even see in the angst of the Israelites that comes through in verse 27 of this passage. My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Where is God in the midst of this? Does he care for us? Is he done with us? And it's into that situation that God throws this rope of hope in verses 1 through 11. Starting with verses one through two. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let's look at those two verses in reverse and see first of all this, that the gospel is the solution to our greatest problem. For the Israelites, No doubt they probably think our greatest problem is that we're stuck in exile in Babylon. And God is saying, no. Your greatest problem is your iniquity and sin against me. And until that's dealt with, it would be pointless for me to bring you back from exile. See, the gospel continually reorients us around what is our greatest problem that we have rebelled against God and therefore deserve to be punished, just like the Israelites in this scenario. And it's only when we see that sin is our biggest problem that God's rope of hope in the gospel can actually find root in our lives, because otherwise it's not that important. And when we see that and see that God has dealt with our sin, then it gives us confidence that if he's dealt with the greatest problem, Surely he can handle everything else in our lives. Just think about if God can stop a tsunami that's bearing down on me or you, then surely he can deal with a three-foot wave. 
And God's telling the Israelites and us, the problem of our sin is like a tsunami because God is forever opposed to people who rebel against him. And every other problem, including even exile in Babylon, is but a three-foot wave. And then God tells Israel, your sin is taken care of. I've dealt with it. Right? He, he tells them in verse 4, your, your iniquity has been pardoned. Or verse 2, sorry. Your sin has been completely and sufficiently dealt with. That, that's what he means when he talks about that you receive double. It's not that God has paid more than they owe. It's just simply, it's done. It's sufficiently dealt with. And we've got to ask, well, how is that? Has the exile really wiped the slate clean? And if it has, what does that mean for the people then coming back who are going to keep sinning? Are they going to have to keep going into exile? Or, or what about us, people who continue to sin but have never been through exile? See, this, this verse actually in some ways leaves us hanging onto Isaiah 53, where Isaiah looks out to Christ, the coming servant of the Lord, and says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's judgment in sending Israel into exile is but a photo negative that gets fully developed in Christ. And he says the, the punishment that we're due, it gets laid on him and we go free. And so if our faith is in Christ, God's words to Israel in chapter 40, verse 2, are the same as his words to us. Your warfare is ended. I'm not against you anymore. Your iniquity is pardoned. You're free. Your sin has been paid for sufficiently, completely. Stop worrying about it. You're, it's done. It was taken care of by Christ. And it's because that's true, if our faith is in Christ, that then the words of verse 1 into verse 2 are true as well. And we see that the gospel is also the answer to our greatest question that one of our greatest questions in this life is, does God really care for me? Does he really love me? Can he really be trusted in all the ups and downs I face in this life? And God's answer in the gospel is yes, absolutely. I am completely, 100%, fully for you and always will be. That's why he says, comfort, comfort my people, emphasizing his care for them. It's why he speaks tenderly to them, or it literally means speaking to their heart. It's the image of like a lover wooing his beloved back to him, saying, I care for you more than you could imagine. It, it's as if God is telling his people throughout all history, I love you more than you could grasp. I know that your sin and the circumstances of life cause you to question that, but I want you to be assured of it. I want you to know that I'm for you completely and fully. I think life, maybe I've, I've found this to be true. I would guess you have too. That life is full of soundtracks playing in our minds and our hearts that would convince us God isn't really for us. Like, 
circumstances don't go how we want and God doesn't respond how we think he should. And what's the soundtrack that immediately gets blared of the speakers? God, you don't care for me. If you did, you wouldn't let this thing happen. Or we sin bad or just keep sinning in the same way over and over again. And what's the, what's the soundtrack that all of a sudden gets cranked up? God is tired of you and your sin. You better get it together or he's going to give up on you. And the gospel is like noise-canceling headphones that simply silences those other soundtracks. Not only that, it plays a better song where God says, I gave up my only son for you. And so I won't give you up if your faith is in him. I gave up my son for you. What else could I do to convince you that I am absolutely for you no matter what might come your way in life? That the only sufficient answer for us is we wonder, is God really for me? Is the gospel where he says, yes, absolutely and fully. It's also what we find in Romans 8.32 where Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, as you and I go throughout this life and find these soundtracks playing over in our head, whether it's through difficult circumstances or through struggles with sin and have us thinking God no longer cares about you, the only sufficient answer to that is to replay the gospel over and over and over and over again. And a replaying of the gospel over and over again is the only thing that will give us confidence to walk through our changes knowing that God really is for us no matter what the outcome is in the midst of those changes. See, we, we, need, we need to be gospel-centered people going back again and again and again to the gospel because it's what simply assures us God really is for us throughout this life. But, but not only that, God goes on and we find that God is committed to transforming us. We can see this as we look at verses three through five. In verses three through five, they give us a picture of God coming to rescue his people from exile and take them home. And part of what they seem to be saying is there is nothing that can keep God from saving his people. No mountain, no valley, no wilderness, no rough terrain can keep him back from rescuing and saving his people. But there also seem to be a picture of God's continuing transforming light or transforming work in the life of his people. Because the New Testament authors take these verses and apply them to John the Baptist's call to repent and obey, to prepare the way uh, for Christ. That Christ is coming, so repent and obey, John the Baptist would tell the people. Isaiah is telling the Israelites in exile, God is coming to rescue you. He's for you, so repent and obey. Or another way we sometimes phrase, use language to put this, is the idea that God meets his people where they are, but does not leave his people where they are. And that the same grace God uses to save us is then the grace God uses to work out as he transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. And so we, we could find two things as we continue to look at these verses. First, 
that God's grace motivates our response. We repent and obey because God is already for us in Christ. We so easily get that flipped upside down or backwards and think, in order to keep or secure or earn more of God's love, I have to repent and obey. And God tells us in the gospel, I already love you and care for you, therefore, obey me. And, and that matters. Order of operations matters here, just like math. Because if I think that it's my repentance and obedience that keeps or earns God's love, then my view of him will waver based on how well I think I'm doing each day or each week. But if it's his grace and love that motivates my obedience and repentance, then my view of him does not change with how great or how poorly I am performing in that moment. And I'll see that it's actually his grace and love that fuels my life of obedience. And so I'll find I need to preach the gospel more and more and more to myself so that I actually have the fuel to change. Think of it this way. We instinctively know that our cars will not move without fuel or electric, if you now have an electric car, right? No fuel, no movement. We should just as instinctively know as Christians, no gospel, no real change. That without knowing that God is absolutely for me, loves me, I won't actually ever fully change. And I won't live in the freedom of his love. Instead, I'll live under the burden of feeling like I have to earn and keep his love. So Isaiah tells the Israelites, God loves you. He's rescuing you. So prepare the way. And then he goes on in the next verse and gives this picture. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And we say, who's doing all of that? How's that happening? How are the mountains getting leveled? How are the valleys getting raised up? How are the rough edges getting smoothed off? God's doing it. Because verse 5 says, it's his glory that's getting displayed for all flesh to see. Well, then we should think, that's metaphor language, right? Hills, valleys, rough terrain. What's that a metaphor pointing to? God's work in transforming the lives of his people that God's grace remakes our lives. That verse four is a picture of your life or my life in God's hands as he works to level the mountains of our pride, raise the valleys of our discouragement, our unbelief, chip away at sin's power in our lives and replace it with joyful obedience to him. And it's God's continuing grace that brings that about, which is again why we say, we need the gospel for all of our lives because the same grace that tr saves us is what transforms us. Now, here's what I want us to see this morning with this. It is absolutely incredible that God doesn't at some point wash his hands of us and walk away and give up on us. Think about, have you ever read the Old Testament and read about the Israelites and thought, why doesn't God just give up and move on? They're so stubborn. They're, they're so slow to get it. They're so forgetful, right? Like they're out in the wilderness for two days and they start complaining. They're, they're, they're always making a mess with their sin. Why doesn't God just give up and move on? To which 
if we know ourselves well and we see that the Bible is actually a mirror reflecting us back, we've got to say, man, I'm so stubborn. I'm so slow to get it. I'm so forgetful. I'm really difficult to change. I'm constantly making a mess with my unbelief, wavering in my love for God. And praise God, he doesn't simply wash his hands and say, I'm done. I'm moving on to easier ground. But it's in him leveling mountains, raising valleys, taking what is difficult and impossible for me to change on my own, you to change your own, that his glory gets displayed. And that one day he then says, look at what I did in his life, her life. And all we can say is, yeah, God, you're pretty awesome. Like it just, it should blow our minds. It it should amaze us just as much as it amazes us that God saves us, that he continues to work to transform us and doesn't simply shake his head one day and say, I'm moving on to someone who's a lot easier to deal with. I think about uh, when we moved to our new house a couple years ago, I think it was in 2016 or 2015, we moved in in October and that winter in January, we got one of the biggest snowstorms in recent history. I think there was at least two feet, maybe more. And so this was the first time that we had a driveway at our house. Before that, we lived in the city. And our driveway, I'm just kind of estimating here, I'm not good with distances, but it's about 100 feet long by eight to 10 feet wide with an additional turnout. And all we had that winter was one shovel. Yeah, first thing that's a bad idea. Second thing that's a bad idea that I thought was a really good idea is I thought, I'm going to wait till it completely stops snowing to go out and shovel. Like, I'm not going to be one of these foolish people that goes out over and over and over again shoveling. That's just, that's wasting energy. What are they thinking? That turns out to be a really bad idea. Because it stopped snowing, I went out, shoveled for like a half an hour, and maybe got a five-by-five-foot piece of our driveway cleared. And walked back in and said something to the effect of like, I'm done. This is going to take way too much time, way too much energy that I give up. Thank goodness we had a neighbor who had a plow at that time and came and plowed our driveway out because they felt bad for us, I think. But I think that driveway covered in snow is an image of our lives. Not covered in snow, but full of sin, unbelief, wavering trust in God, wavering love for him and for other people. And it should simply stun us that God doesn't at some point say, This takes too much energy and takes too long to change this one. I'm out. And instead, day after day after day shows his grace as he works to transform us. This, there are, I think, lots of reasons this matters, but let me point out two. One is, this is what gives us confidence to keep kind of bumbling forward in repenting of sin and seeking to obey God. Because as we stumble and bumble our way throughout this life, God is leveling mountains and raising valleys. And he's doing what is difficult and impossible in our lives. And so we've got the confidence to keep fighting in that area of sin, to keep working to obey God in that area. It's so difficult to obey him. Not because we can change ourselves, but because God is graciously working to change us over time. That's what gives us... We, we look at our lives, I think, a lot of times, and maybe just see a sinful mess. And God looks at our lives and sees what he's doing by his grace to make us more like Christ. And that gives us confidence to keep bumbling forward in obedience to him. 
not only that, but I think it also gives us a window into what is God doing in the midst of our changes and transitions. As life becomes bumpy because things change, God is working to change us and smooth us out. I think when things change in our lives, we, we often, when things get bumpy, we often want God to smooth out the way for us. But what he's actually doing is smoothing out us through the midst of those bumps and ups and downs. And so our hope is not that all our changes go great, everything works out well for us, but that God, through big and small changes, is actually working to change us, to smooth us out, to make us more and more like Christ. And he doesn't give up on that because his commitment to us is forever. If verses three through five give us a picture of God's transforming commitment, verses six through eight give us a picture of his enduring commitment, that God is committed to us forever. He says this, first of all, all flesh is like grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. God is telling us everything in this life has an expiration date. That everything in some way is like a banana. Good for three days and then it turns brown and mushy. Sure, it might last for longer than three days, but it doesn't last forever. Everything we're tempted to put our hopes in in this life, to lean on, to trust in, one day fades, God says, has an expiration date. From houses to graduate degrees, sports careers to portfolios, beautiful vacations to beautiful appearances, positions of power to portraits of health, it all goes away, God says. It all disappears one day. And that, that's not a very popular thing for us to say or to hear, but it's vital because God is saying, don't lean your weight on what will fall down underneath you. Don't grab onto a rope of hope that's not even tethered in at the other end. Don't trust in what will fade. Instead, trust in what will never fade. My commitment to you that God's commitment to us never has an expiration date. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, what's that word that stands forever? Not just the Bible in general, but the gospel specifically, because Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25, and here's what he says. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Quoting Isaiah. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Material things fade. Bodies fade. Empires fade. God's commitment to us in the gospel never fades. Let, let's think about this just for a moment in kind of like big picture history. Just think, think with me since these words in Isaiah. How many empires have come and gone? The Babylonian Empire, long gone. The Persian Empire that came after it, dead and gone. The, the, Greece, or the Greek Empire after that, gone. The Roman Empire that lasted so long, gone. The Ottoman Empire, gone. The, the great British Empire, the 1700s and 1800s, dwindled down. The, the American Empire, whatever we think that is in our minds, one day gone. What about the gospel? 
still saving and transforming people's lives from all nations to this day. Like the the weakness and the foolishness of the gospel has long outrun and outdone the power and wisdom of this world over and over and over again. And God is telling us, perhaps especially if you're not a Christian, don't lean your trust in what will fade, but lean it in Christ. Turn to him, repent, and see that my commitment to you will never fade. But, but let's narrow this down to even to our own lives to see that God in some ways is saying, my grace to you, my glory to you, my goodness to you will never go away will never fade. My commitment will never run dry on you. God's commitment to love and care for you in Christ is the same tomorrow as it is today. It's the same 10 years from now as it was 10 years ago. It never runs dry. We have a a well at our house currently. It's how we get all of our water in our house. And I've been told there's some bad news. The well isn't dug as deep as it should be. And so one day we might end up waking up and find out that our well has run dry and we've got to dig a new well or find a new source of water somehow. God is telling us in these verses, the well of my grace will never run dry on you in Christ. You can never drink so much grace that one day we'll wake up and and find out, oh, we used it all. Sorry, there's no more left. Go find something else. That says, no, my commitment to you is unending. My word stands forever. My grace is sufficient for anything. Like this, this is what enables us to face the future with confidence. We have absolutely no idea What will come down the pipeline of life our way? We have no way of knowing the future. We never will. And yet God is in some sense saying, whatever comes down the pipeline of life your way, my way, will be met by a sufficient supply of grace from God's pipeline into our lives. I mean, think about about how that would comfort the Israelites as they leave exile, go home to a city that's destroyed, a temple that's in ruins, with nations all around that are bigger than them and threatening for God to say, but I will be with you and my commitment to you won't run out and my grace will be sufficient for you whatever comes. Think about in our own lives as we face all sorts of unknown changes and transitions, difficulties and joys, the, the confidence it can bring us, the antidote to worry and fear that it might bring us to know that God's grace will never run dry. Like that's what can keep you and I getting out of bed day after day after day is to know today God's grace will be sufficient. Tomorrow, again. Tomorrow, again. Next day, again. Again, again. That's what gives us confidence in a life where we have no idea what will happen next week. God's commitment to his people doesn't end, never runs out. And that commitment is ultimately for us to know and enjoy him above all else. We can see, I think, in verses 9 through 11, God is committed to us enjoying him forever. Like, what, what's the prize for the Israelites in this passage? To leave exile? To go home? No, those are actually secondary. The prize comes in verse 9 through 11. Their prize is that they get to behold their God. Like, 
God's commitment to us isn't finally about us in some way. It's about us enjoying him forever. And and the end of the gospel and the end of us being a gospel-centered people is this. We enjoy God. We worship him. We make much of him. Edward Young says about this passage, says this is the great theme of the remainder of the prophecy of Isaiah. It is the very center of the gospel. If we have not God, we have nothing. And if we have him, we have all things. The, the gospel shows us a God who is powerful enough to do anything. He comes with might and his arm rules for him, Isaiah says. And yet is so tender and caring that he's like a shepherd who carries us next to his heart. Who wouldn't want to know that God? Who, who wouldn't want to trust that God. That's the God the gospel presents to us. That's the God Christ reveals to us. If the gospel ends with me saying, I'm great, I've completely missed the point. Because the gospel should end with me saying, God is great. Well, here's another way to think about that. If the gospel ends with me at the center of God's affections, I've missed it. Because the gospel should end with God at the center of my affections. He is the prize. I think about, when I think about this, I think about uh, all the grooms on their wedding day who have heard the phrase or word to some effect that says this. Someone comes up to them and says something like this. You know, today isn't ultimately about you. It's about her. People don't really care about you. They, they care about her. To which no groom ever has said, wait a second, it's not about me? Let's just call the whole thing off. Why are we doing this in the first place? But to which every groom ever, I think, has thought in some ways, I don't care if it's not about me because I get her, the one who it is all about. And so I win. So I don't care. When we hear the gospel isn't all about us, our response should be, who cares if it's not all about me? We get God the one who is greater than we can imagine, the one whose power is greater than we can dream, and yet the one whose love and care for us is better than we dare believe at times. God is the prize of the gospel. This is why we sing a song like Christ is mine forevermore. We're thinking about the words we sing in that song. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone, hope is sure. Why? Because Christ is mine forevermore. That's the heart of the gospel. The gospel doesn't end with me getting to heaven. It ends with me enjoying Christ now and forever. And as I start to enjoy Christ more and more, then all of a sudden, I also want to say to other people, behold what God is like. Which is why Isaiah tells Zion and Jerusalem and us, this news is too good to be hoarded. It needs to be heralded for the world to hear. Go up on a mountain. Turn up the volume. Don't be afraid. Tell people, behold what God is like. Look at Christ. See him coming with power and yet tender and care. His compassion, his grace, and yet he will reign forever as our king. If we've found the rope of hope that God offers us in the gospel, then God makes us messengers of hope to a world that is desperately in need of Christ and of hope. I want to wrap up this morning 
in a little different way. Uh, instead of closing us in prayer, uh, as the worship team comes up, I just want to be able to read for us the rest of Isaiah 40. Because in verse 9, Isaiah starts by saying, Behold your God. And then for the rest of the chapter, he lays out, Here's what your God is like. Behold him. See how great he is. And, and so if you wouldn't mind, I, I'd love to have you all stand. And if you just even want to close your eyes and listen to these words as we together behold the God who is ours in Christ. And then as we finish by singing these words in the song, Behold Your God. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even young men shall faint and be weary, and shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Behold your God. <laughs>